I would assert that it's almost impossible, maybe impossible, to become the best version of oneself without experiencing any discomfort or fear or stress. And I think that boils down to the hormesis idea. It boils down to the Hans Selye, who won the Nobel Prize for General, General Adaptation Syndrome. Yes, you have distress and you have stress, but that you become a stronger, better neural organism. You become a stronger, better physical organism by placing yourself into reasonable scenarios or sometimes unreasonable scenarios in which you experience stress and have to work your way through it, survive it, compensate, and show up better. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome, everyone, to the Neurohacker Collective podcast, Collective Insights. My name is Daniel. I'm with research and development here at Neurohacker Collective, and we are really excited to have Dr. Andrew Hewerman with us today. Andrew is a professor of neuroscience, neurobiology at Stanford School of Medicine, which is uh, one of the eminent neuroscience centers in the world, cutting edge uh, work in understanding the brain. When he and I first met, he was at uh, UCSD and the Salk Institute and uh, transferred a couple of years ago up to uh, uh, Stanford. And he also runs the Huberman Labs, which is working on the neuroscience of vision. And he has a very interesting kind of history with uh, studying vision and then the neuroscience of vision and then sensory processing. And then as a result of that, fear has uh, really helped develop the uh, neurobiology lab at Stanford and the tech there. And they have some really cutting edge work they're doing with uh, VR and a number of fun things. And so we're going to kind of explore today uh, some personal development related insights that come from formal academic neuroscience. And uh, we're going to invite Andrew to be a little bit uh, free to be more speculative regarding what an animal trial or an early human trial might actually say down the road and where these insights are likely going. Uh, then he probably gets to be in formal uh, paper publication. And Andrew, thank you for being here. Thank you, Daniel. I'm delighted to be here. Um, first of all, I have uh, tremendous respect for what you guys are doing at the Neurohacker Collective. Um, and uh, it's wonderful to see how much things have progressed in the last couple of years. And I'm sure the rest is still to come. I, um, I've enjoyed a lot of our conversations about science and technology and looking forward to looking forward to more. One fun thing about uh, Andrew is that in addition to being uh, you know an academic researcher of um, the brain from a you know third person science perspective he also has a you know long history with extreme sports with bodybuilding with uh, you know various athletics and with the nutrition and biochemistry and biohacking that goes along with that and um, uh, some fun things that uh, he'll share here and personal development. So he's got a first person experience and third person knowledge of the field. So we, we have a fun bit of areas that we can cover. So, you know, I would, I would love if we could just start with talk about fear a little bit and the work that you guys have done in fear and specifically the fight, flight, freeze responses, the differences in them, courage, a little bit about what you've learned there, because it is one of the, you know, deepest experiences for all mammals, obviously, and for humans, and it cripples people the most, and they're 
in the presence of fear, there are some people that will be crippled and others that won't be crippled by it. And there's some insights that I think you guys are at the very cutting edge of learning regarding this, which is critical for everyone. So talk to us about it. Sure. Um, so uh, before I start, I just have to say I'm, I, uh, I'm smiling because uh, you mentioned uh, experience with bodybuilding, definitely with extreme sports and martial arts. I, w I guess I could probably say that I'm one of the larger neuroscientists out there, but I wouldn't consider myself a bodybuilder. I just, I got involved in resistance training and um, fitness pretty young uh, for reasons that we can get into later is that um, they kind of relate to fear. Um, and I, I've just been struck at how quickly the, um, the world of physical augmentation has evolved, not just in strength training, but in other areas of physical augmentation and how, what there's been this lag in sort of uh, cognitive and um, neural augmentation, but now I think we're, we're in the era where we're really going to catch up. So, mm -hmm. uh, but to get to your question, um, so I think it's, um, so right, so my laboratory has two wings to it. One wing of the laboratory, meaning um, some people and some physical space that are devoted to understanding how to repair the nervous system after injury. And that's something I've been um, mainly focused on the visual system to prevent and cure blinding diseases like glaucoma. And that's still a very active area of pursuit for us. The other half of the lab is working on um, things like why are certain visual stimuli, why are certain visual events scary? Why do they suddenly trigger a limbic response, if you will, that um, puts people into a state of anxiety? And we're also studying what I think is a really interesting topic, is a new area for us, um, what we're calling visual empathy or primal empathy, which is the, the sensation of, of, of an emotion by virtue of what you see somebody else experiencing visually. And that's, and so, um, so just briefly, we got into fear, my interest in fear primarily because we're such visual animals. I mean, more than 40% of the human brain is devoted to vision. We really traded out olfaction and the chemical sensing of things in the environment um, through our noses for vision. Um, some people are also depend on their auditory systems a lot, but uh, we're so visually driven. So most of what I'll talk about is visual fear. Um, I've been asked, what is fear? There aren't great operational definitions for a lot of these things, but to me, fear is a negative sensation in the body for which you don't really know what to do in order to alleviate it. So if you, you know, if I take a sip of this drink, you know, which is tea, and then you say, oh my God, you didn't take a sip of that drink, did you? And I say, why, why, what, why not? Is it, what's wrong with it? And you say, that's poison. You got 15 minutes get to the hospital. I mean, that's, I'm going to be scared. I'm going to be anxious. I'm going to, you know, especially if it's you telling me that, cause you're not somebody to, to play games like that. Um, you know, and then we, of course have, you know, the writers have described fear in a couple different ways. Interesting way. Stephen King, I think it was the one who said there's, um, there's dread, the thing that you're worried about happening. There's terror. There's like some, as it happens. And then there's horror, which is the, after the event, the kind of the replay in your mind that that was horrible. It was horrifying. Um, you know, that's some semantics and it relates to language and it's probably different across cultures, but I, I like that because they all encapsulate something very important, which is that they, that all of fear involves kind of a negative arousal. It's like an arousal that you wouldn't want to have. And so, um, my laboratory a couple of years ago, we decided, um, and when I say we, I, it's really a spectacular graduate student in the neuroscience program, then at UCSD, who is now in the neuroscience program at Stanford, Lindsay Soleil started using, um, you know, the typical animal, animal model for us is mice, but we also now work in humans and we have clinical trials in humans run through my lab. And um, which, what Lindsay did was a really simple experiment where she took a mouse, put in a little box, and then showed it an overhead expanding black disc, which to the mouse, we think appears 
something like a predator coming in to eat it. And when you do that to for a mouse, it has one of two responses. It either freezes, I mean, just absolutely stone cold freezes, or it runs in, and hides in a shelter if it can. And that itself is interesting because we talk about fight or flight, but actually a fight response to something scary is very rare in an animal. Typically an animal that's scared will, will freeze or run. So I think we need to start to rethink even our most basic kind of, um, you know, cultural understanding of what fear really induces. It's going to be freeze or run. The next really critical discovery that Lindsay made was she screened the brain of these animals that were scared. And she asked in a very unbiased way, what are the brain areas that are activated? And she identified this the and region of the of the central brain, it's called the xiphoid nucleus. Very few people have known about it. I teach neuroanatomy to medical students. I did that at UCSD, I do that at Stanford, and I didn't even know where this nucleus was. It sits right in the middle of the brain, right in the center. And this nucleus is very interesting because it connects to areas of the forebrain involved in thinking and areas of the brain like the amygdala, which are involved in threat detection. It also connects to reward centers in the brain, and I'll come back to that. So here's this area that seems to be involved in the fear response. And so then Lindsay went and used some genetic tricks, um, which allowed her to turn on and off or increase or decrease the activity of this structure while the animal was experiencing fear. And what she saw was really remarkable. What she saw was that mice that were once afraid of this overhead looming object by freezing, we, they told us they were afraid by freezing or running, suddenly would ignore it or would even confront it, maybe even try and rattle their tail, which for a mouse is an aggressive response. That's incredible in its own right, because here, you know, she had discovered a brain area that very, you know, it's reasonable to assume at, at least plays some important role in regulating the behavioral response to fear or what we call the level of threat that, or risk that the animal will tolerate, right? Because we can't, we can ask the mouse what it feels, but it's not going to tell us. So, but what we do know, what we can measure is how much risk that animal will tolerate when you stimulate this brain area. And then the, the fourth element that was really interesting, kind of fourth discovery in this is she said, well, what's going on? Is it something that has to, is the activation of this brain area have to be coincide with this, the delivery of this fear stimulus? And it turns out it doesn't. She could increase the activity of this structure, the xiphoid nucleus, and then present animals with a scary situation and they would confront it. They would go from fear to courage, if you will. And that told us something really essential, which is that so much of what we think about in terms of our response to fear or our, our level of risk tolerance is really a state. It's a state throughout the body. It's a state that's throughout the brain. It's a systemic effect. It's not just going to be the activation of one brain area. Okay. So that was all fine and good. And we're excited. And those um, data are, have been written up and have been submitted and hopefully will be wrapped up and published in early 2018. Things are looking good for that. You know, knock on wood. Um, and, but in parallel to all that, we set up a laboratory where, and this was a postdoc by the name of Melissa Yilmaz, who had come to us from Harvard and then Caltech, really tremendously um, a talented postdoc. And she said, you know, all this stuff that we're doing in mice, and she had done similar work in mice during her graduate work. She said, I want to build a box just like that, but for humans. And so that's what we did. We took, you know, this arguably one of the most state-of-the-art human performance or human behavior labs to study fear in the world. It was about a million and a half bucks to build a, 
this laboratory where essentially you put a human in there, they put on VR goggles, I'll say why VR, and we've got motion tracking for the body, we're measuring heart rate, breathing, sweating, we're also measuring pupillometry, how big the pupils are, which is a very fast autonomic readout of, a readout of autonomic activity or, or arousal. And so we then took it upon ourselves to go out and collect the video of different fear-inducing scenarios, attack dogs, heights, great white sharks. We can talk about great white sharks and some real world fear, some real world, you know, I wouldn't say terrifying, but it's pretty scary stuff. Brought that back to the lab. And then in VR, you can, you can get about as close to the real world as possible in humans and, um, and then measure their fear responses either through these non-invasive things like I just described, tools like I just described. But we've also done experiments in collaboration with my friend Eddie Chang, who's a neurosurgeon at UCSF, where you actually have had patients with electrodes embedded down through the skull into the human amygdala while watching these 360 experiences of, of sharks and whatnot and can measure the neural signals that occur. So we now have this parallel platform of doing studies in the mouse and, and studies in the human. And this is where something really exciting comes up. First of all, we now believe that fight is a separate response that's distinct from the fight, from the, excuse me, that fight is a distinct response from the freeze or flee response. That fight may not actually be on the fear axis. That it might, that fight or flight isn't necessarily the way it works. You know, people always think if you get scared enough, you get backed into a corner, you're going to fight. That might be true, but there's another axis in which people select to confront scary things. And the cool thing is there's a, a study that was published in the 60s, two patients. They can stimulate any area of the brain that they want, including a region that corresponds to the xiphoid nucleus in the mouse, which is the central median nucleus of the, of the thalamus in humans for the aficionados, or if you want to go look it up. This is a paper from Heath, 1963, published in Science. And so these people can stimulate anywhere they want, areas of the brain that stimulate sexual arousal, the feeling of, you know, that they're a little bit drunk. All these different brain areas they can stimulate, and they can, because they're humans, they can report what they feel. The number one brain area, now it's just two patients, but the number one area that these two people want to hit the lever on all the time, so to speak, and stimulate is this area of the brain that it corresponds to the same nucleus that Lindsay was studying in mice that shift them from fear to courage or from higher or to higher levels of risk tolerance. And the subjective feeling that they experience is one of mild frustration and kind of effort. And I find that incredible. What it says is that there might be something innately rewarding about wanting to challenge fears or challenge the confront things. And, you know, we've taken upon ourselves to think that fear is a bad thing and stress is a bad thing. And now there's some stuff coming out about stress maybe being positive, depending on how you interpret the event. That isn't our work, but other work. Uh, and I find it so interesting that as humans, so much of what drove our evolution was the willingness to confront fear and take on risk in reasonable, healthy ways. And here, now again, we're seeing these brain areas that people will work, they'll actually work in order to stimulate these brain areas, just like mice will. And so I, I've gone long-winded on this answer, but I guess what I'd like the listeners to take away is that fight or flight is probably a misnomer, that the fight axis is probably a distinct thing, um, and that the fear response has a lot more to do with a state in your body and brain than it does have to do with something fundamental about your neural architecture. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're a, a scaredy cat. It means that and what it points to is the idea that if we can control state, if we can manipulate state in a very dedicated way, that we stand a chance to really evolve our species 
through higher levels of healthy risk tolerance or higher levels of risk tolerance where payoffs might be advantageous. Okay, so I think that this is one of the most meaningful areas of what it portends for human possibility and human development. So I want to um, go deeper into several aspects of the physiology. So first, when you said that there's something inherently rewarding about confronting fear. So, you know, we start to think of a hormesis effect, right? That when you have some stress on an adaptive system, that it increases the adaptive capacity of the system. And if you don't stress an adaptive system, then it decreases its capacity because there's no benefit in keeping it. So we know that with exercise and we know it with uh, cold tolerance, like Wim Hof work that you did. But also when someone confronts a stress that they can actually adapt to increase their capacity to handle, they become a human with more capacity. If there's a stress that they can't increase their capacity to handle, then it just becomes strain and damages the system, right? So it's just like if you lift an amount of weight that just rips muscles, that doesn't build muscle. So fear, we can imagine, has a similar thing, right? Which is the ability to confront a level of fear that we actually can process as opposed to just become frozen and you know crippled with and that in doing so we're increasing our capacity and that maybe there is a developmental reward around capacity increasing mm -hmm. so then the question i have has to do with maybe speculations on the chemistry of this because you said not just the xiphoid nucleus but the entire physiology and state so when we think of fear and we think of threat detection we typically think of you know decreased heart rate variability increased sympathetic response, decreased parasympathetic. And then chemically, we think of increased adrenal cortex hormones and an acceleration of the catecholamines converting from dopamines, norepinephrine, epinephrine faster, right? Kind of roughly. Yep. Yep. But then when we think of reward, we think of more dopamine and dopamine opioid dynamics. So is there something maybe where instead of dopamine con converting more quickly into norepinephrine and epinephrine it's actually staying as dopamine and maybe interacting with opioids or endorphins is it do, have you guys started to explore what the chemistry of this might be yeah so we haven't delved too deeply into the underlying chemistry right now we've mainly been focused on trying to parse the neural circuitry so really trying to identify you know these brain areas that are involved in these sort of let's say, call it the behavioral response to fear and the level of risk tolerance because it's very you know actually one thing i'd like to move toward eventually we don't have to do it in this conversation of course is that i think it's gonna be very hard to talk about emotions in any kind of objective way it's hard to really know you know how one feels i mean i, I can guess that you feel okay but that's an evaluation that's evaluation i don't really know what happy is to you or happy is to me it's, it's very subjective but we can in a very reasonable way start to think about measuring states in an objective way so what you're bringing up is really interesting. You know, arousal, there are different kinds of arousal. There's a stress response, there's sexual arousal, there's arousal that's excitement if you're looking forward to an, a, an event, a movie or a concert or time with particular people, for instance. And of course you can blend all those things too. But the, the interesting thing is that um, from a pure, purely neural standpoint, it's very hard to imagine that the neurochemical milieu that underlies arousal is going to be that much different for a scary event versus a, uh, an event that you want to be there for. For this, I'm going to steal a little anecdote um, from my good friend and, uh, and now business partner, uh, Brian McKenzie, who some of you might know, he's been 
in a number of Tim Ferriss' books for his work on running and extreme performance. Brian and I are doing a lot of work on applied breath work now and applied um, use of the visual system in conjunction with breath work for controlling fear states. But Brian tells it like this. So, um, you know, the, the classic example of a lion taking out, you know, taking off in pursuit of its prey, um, let's say an antelope or, or some other um, grazing animal. And, you know, from a physiological standpoint, there's adrenaline in their systems. There's glucose is being shuttled to the muscles. You know, the pupils are dilated. It's all systems go. It's, you know, it's really a, um, it's on. And both animals are really in this heightened state of arousal. That you can say for sure. But there's only one difference, which is the lion actually wants to be there. Mm. And so for the lion, the, the loss or the, or the failure to catch its prey means it can just go try again. And for the antelope, the loss, you know, the loss of that battle, it's, it's over. And so, you know, really, you start to think about human behavior and you start to think a little bit about how the arousal response is generated. And neurochemically, it's pretty generic. As humans, of course, you have this forebrain that superimposes meaning on what just happened. So maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but, you know, I've decided to put myself at various points in, in my life into some pretty high stress scenarios, certainly not the most stressful scenarios that are available, but some pretty high stress, physically threatening scenarios like cage exit diving with white sharks and things like that. Because I, I personally believe that if it's done with a certain amount of, uh, you know, risk control, um, and uh, you understand the contingencies and there's some skills involved that there's great growth in those in those experiences, in the same way that mountain climbers feel that there's great growth in climbing mountains. I don't think they climb mountains just because they're there. Why do they climb? Because they're there. I don't think so. I think that humans want to climb mountains because they want to take on challenges. Neurochemically, I think we're going to parse difference, but it must be that the dopamine system is involved at some level. I believe that. It must be that the adrenal system is involved in some level just based on the readouts that we see in humans and in mice, this ex, um, expansion of the pupils, which is what happens under heightened state of arousal. The opioid system might be a, uh, is an interesting system. It's a harder one for us to parse. So I'm not trying to dance around and answer. We haven't looked at this deeply. We will get there. Mm -hmm. The real mechanistic work is going to come in the following set of experiments. Nowadays, it's straightforward, thanks to the beautiful work of my colleague, Carl Dyseroth at Stanford, who developed channel options, and Ed Boyden, who was at Stanford and is now at MIT, light control over neurons, chemical control over neurons, and specific neurons, that the next set of experiments that Lindsay and, and the rest of the lab are planning to do is to tickle just the neurons, say, in the opioid pathway um, that project out of reunions. It's got, oh, sorry, out of um, xiphoid. Reunions is a neighboring nucleus. It's very interesting that this area of the brain is also chock-a-block full of oxytocin receptors. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll just take that mm -hmm. as an opportunity to say that I think that the more generic conversations about dopamine, norepinephrine, oxytocin, and serotonin that have been kind of out there in the general public are going to start to become more nuanced because, of course, all these neurotransmitters and neuromodulators are doing different things in different neural structures. Um, and I, uh, it gets into a deep conversation about how the brain works and still much of what we don't understand about how the brain works, but we'll get there. Um, but I find it interesting that arousal is associated with all these states, both positive and negative. Right. So a really key thing in the lion gazelle example is the difference in the worst case scenario, right? So when you think about the amygdala and threat detection, the lion recognizes that the threat is it might not, it might expend some energy, um, which can be dangerous. 
and the gazelle recognizes that it might die. And so they both have arousal, but they have a very different sense of total worst case scenario threat projection. So I'm curious when you looked at the, you know, the mice under these different cases or the humans under these different cases, rather than looking at the differences in the xiphoid, looking at the difference in the amygdala and saying, of course, they're all going to be recognizing threat. But do the current scenarios involve some difference in the amygdala where it's actually not processing the threat as being more than it has capacity to respond to? Because it would seem like courage is, I actually have the capacity to respond to this threat versus not. Now, I'm so glad you asked this question because it, uh, it points to a really interesting result that we have in hand and that I forgot to mention earlier. Um, this, the xiphoid nucleus, I, as I mentioned earlier, connects to the which is a threat detection center. It connects to the nucleus accumbens, which is associated with dopaminergic related re reward. And it projects to the forebrain, um, areas of the brain involved in cognitive processing, the prefrontal cortex in particular. Lindsay did a beautiful set of experiments in which she could tease out which of these pathways, when activated, could actually trigger the animal towards a reduced fear response and increased courage. Hmm. And it was by increasing the activity of the xiphoid to forebrain pathway in particular. Mm -hmm. When she increased the activity of the xiphoid to amygdala, area, she saw more fear, sure. or less courage. And so what you really got now is a structure that's sort of like an old school switch operator in the telephones. Some of your listeners won't know what that is because this is like something from, you know, even before my childhood where people would take out plugs and put them in. So it's like a switchboard where basically the structure is integrating sensory information, not just visual information, but it's sensory input, and then making decisions about, okay, under these conditions where there's this certain amount of threat, what am I going to do? What's the best outcome? Am I willing to take on some risk? It turns out that the forebrain is making that assessment. Mm -hmm. And so this is what it re it's really about. It's not about going into a heightened level of arousal to the point where you lose your cognition. It's about maintaining clear cognition under heightened state of arousal. So this brings up so many questions because the forebrain of a mouse and the forebrain of a human are not really good analogs at all, right? Um, because forebrain of a human, prefrontal cortex, the abstraction capacity to not just look at our past experiences and see which ones are relevant here, but to actually be able to assess the scenario in a, in a truly abstract way. Um, I'm super curious about the difference there. Yeah. So... Um, prefrontal cortex in mouse is not nearly as evolved. And when I say evolved, I mean, it doesn't have as much stuff there even. There's right. stuff in human prefrontal cortex you're not going to find in a mouse. You're not going to find in a monkey. Um, you know, the massive expansion of the cerebral cortex in humans, which is why it has all the gyra and bumps. You've taken all that and crammed it into a small skull, whereas a mouse skull is, or a mouse brain is smooth because it's less surface area per, um, per skull space, essentially. Um, so there's stuff there that you're just not even going to find in a mouse. On the other hand, the mouse is doing some thinking um, in addition to just some reacting. And by thinking, what we mean is that, it, you know, the forebrain is required for assessing multi-sensory input and making decisions about which motor commands to create and which motor commands to suppress. The freeze response is actually a very, I mean, it's innate. It doesn't require the cortex. We know that based on our work and, and work from other laboratories. But it's a, it's a very active response, even though the animal is still. It's very hard to stay completely mm -hmm. still for any, for any creature unless they're dead. And so, you know, the, the forebrain of the mouse is clearly exerting what we call top-down control 
over the behavioral response. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting to look at these animals when they confront the fear response in this nucleus of stimulated. They tail rattle, they'll pause as if they're gonna freeze and then they, and then they keep going. And it, they'll also start moving around quite a bit more. So they're making themselves very salient, very visible. The tail rattling actually makes noise. It's the worst thing you'd wanna do if there was a predator. It's more like beating their chest than it is freezing or, or fleeing or anything else. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so when we talk about prefrontal cortex in a mouse, we're talking about a rudimentary kind of primitive prefrontal cortex, which is probably doing a simple math of contingencies. If A, then B, and if B, then C. You know, the, the brain is doing math. It, whether or not you like math or not, what neurons are doing is they're computing things in space and time and making assessments. Um, they're not thinking, there's no little person in there. The collective is the person or the mouse. But um, the collective activity of those neurons. But clearly the forebrain is exerting some top-down control. They're good experiments, for instance, where if you take even just an owl, um, which is a very visual and auditory hunter, as we know, and you lesion the forebrain input to some of these subcortical areas that control motor reflexes, they become like machines. If you go like this, the, the owl will look everywhere. Think a, a kitten or a puppy. When my bulldog Costello was a puppy, I could put anything in front of him and he'd pick it up with his mouth. Anything I could, I mean, anything was a toy. Now it's like, you know, he's older, his forebrain is, is developed. And for a long time now, he's just not as excited by these little things. This is what makes puppies and kittens cute is kind of, they walk, they walk along, they grab a cord, they roll over, they pee in the corner. They do, they're kind of helpless in the fact that everything's a stimulus mm -hmm. as the forebrain matures and myelinates and top down control from the forebrain matures and myelinates animals become much more focused and dedicated in the actions that they'll take and that they won't take. Think a predator, a lion that's waiting for the gazelle. There's a lot of active suppression. It's making an assessment. Which ones are moving quickly? Which ones are moving slowly? Am I going to attack the flanks or am I going to attack the head? These kinds of things. Those kind of assessments are clearly forebrain assessments. So there's some kind of feedback loop that's interesting here in this shunting from the xiphoid to either more amygdala action or more um, frontal action, because to say that there is some top-down control from frontal, only if the xiphoid already shunted that way, or right. there is a little bit that's already happening. So there's some feedback process between the prefrontal and the xiphoid that then helps inform the xiphoid shunt more or not. Yeah. Have you? Because the question like, is, where is the where is the actual point of intervention? Yeah, right? that's a great question. You know that the field of neuroscience has progressed so far to the point where we can now control the activity of real of neurons in real time in the whole animal um, and, and make these kinds of assessments even in specific neuron types um, very few experiments including in our laboratory have assessed these kind of the dynamic interplay between different structures in real time that's really represents the, the i think the, the next five years of work not to, not to um, defer but um, we're just getting to the point where we can do that reasonably. And, but I think you're right. I think there's going to be activity streaming through the xiphoid to all three structures. And then the overall state of the animal will probably dictate the extent to which the balance of activity between, you know, shifted towards frontal cortex suppressing amygdala is kind of the battle of, of neural activation, if you will. Um, you know, it, it brings up a, it could bring up an anecdote, but it brings up a scenario where if you've ever been in a panic situation, a very high stress situation, and you're not trained to go into an automatic motor pattern, you start becoming erratic with your behavior. The fear response takes over. It's, you know, I had this happen on one of our dives recently. I had an air, air failure. I was a technical fail, failure. Um, it was a really bad situation. 
um, white sharks everywhere outside the cage. I was in the cage at that point. Um, safety tank, not available to me at that moment for reasons we could discuss. Um, really, it was like the worst situation, um, except for not except for not being able to get out of the cage. So the decision was, you know, air suddenly cut out, and my first thought was, "You got to be kidding me! This isn't happening." It was kind of disbelief. Second thought, no joke, was I'm going home. I'm going to see Costello. That was really the thought that went through my. It was a cognitive decision. I want to die. I'm going home. Third, go to the safety tank. That was what I'd been trained to do. Safety didn't open. Go to the second safety tank. Safety didn't open or is open, but it's empty. So now it's like, so you immediately go into these automatic, you know, these OODA loop kind of responses uh, as the military refers to them. And then it was, okay, I guess I'm going to drop my weight belt and shoot for the surface because I wasn't on scuba, which is um, great for getting back to air. There's air at the surface. If I stay down 100% certainty, I'm going to die from lack of oxygen, but um, you're surrounded by large, great whites. This is not a good situation. They love to eat things or go after things that are shooting for the surface. In fact, the way that you cage exit and swim with great whites is by swimming toward them when they come at you and alongside them. You loom on them and they're not used to, they're the apex predator, so they're not usually comfortable with things looming on them, so they treat you with respect. If you do that, if you act like prey, they will treat you like prey. But at that point, it was really, that was my only choice. I was fortunate enough that one of the out of cage divers turned around and saw me and made the, what felt like a very slow traverse back to the cage. And then we did the, you know, sort of classic share air thing. But even that of grabbing the regulator and breathing off his air and then passing it back and forth is something that if you're not trained to do in your dive training, a lot of people just hold on to it and the other guy ends up dying. There's a struggle where they let go. I mean, you, you have to be calm enough. And so um, this was a situation which I could sense my behavior starting to get a little erratic as each of the motor programs that I had been lined up or trained to perform was giving me a uh, an F. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like, no, no, you're not going to get air here. You're not going to get it. Your behavior starts getting a little erratic. So I think what happens is there's a number of things happening. The st your state is going up. Carbon dioxide is increasing in the system. And your behavior starts getting a little bit more um, crazy, if you will. And this is why people who, you know, they can't even dial 911 under conditions of emergency, or they get tangled up in some seaweed while diving, some kelp, and their regulator gets kicked out or something, or they, they, and, and they, they find them dead 10 minutes later. It's not because they didn't, couldn't reach over and grab it. It's because you, you start to lose, you lose yourself. And so one of the most exciting and interesting areas of neuroscience that's really evolving fast, this is some beautiful work that's being done by a guy named Stephen Lieberlees out at Harvard, looking at vagal stimulation, and other people like our lab, they're looking at adrenal stimulation is finally, after years of this mind-body separation, and people even talk about mind versus body, people are starting to look at how the periphery, you know, the, the vagus and the adrenals and stuff that's happening in the body is impacting neural processing in the brain and vice versa. It's like, and you might say, duh, of course, it's all one system. But when you and I were growing up, it was mind versus body where it was brain versus mind. And I think it's wonderful that we've now discarded of that. And it's like, of course, there's an organ in your head and it's all working together. That was a, uh, that was a good test experience that you had with the sharks. I, I have to say, I, um, I got to the surface. I was coughing up a little bit of water. And I have to say, I, I don't recommend that experience to anybody. Um, <laughs> but I am, I am immensely grateful 
And I knew that what happened over the next 24 hours was extremely important. My interpretation was very important. It's more about the top-down control. I wouldn't wish for that experience, um, but I have a good friend uh, who joined us on the dive, who incidentally also cage exited, um, good friend, Pat Dawson. He came up to me afterwards and um, he said immediately, the first question he asked me, he has some experience um, with high, high stress scenarios. And he pulled me aside and said, um, so what'd you take away from that experience? Mm -hmm. That was the first question that I was asked. Not, are you okay? Or anything. I, I immediately was like, okay, what did I take away? I took away, check the safeties yourself. Don't rely mm -hmm. on that. Um, you know, it turned out it was a human communication error really that, that led to that situation. Um, and I also felt tested. I feel I'm actually grateful for the experience in retrospect because I felt tested. It felt like a little bit of a rebirth of sorts. Um, and it was actually the next day that I cage exited for the first time. And people say, even on the boat, they're like, are you really going to do that? But look, I'm a scientist. The probabilities are independent. The probability that it would happen the next day is totally independent. The next day I was on scuba. So they're independent probabilities, right? Flipping a coin once, flipping it twice, independent probabilities. And the second thing is I knew what had happened. And so when you, mm -hmm. when you have the benefit of knowing what went wrong, you're in a good position to, uh, to make different choices. So this, again. when you yeah. say I'm a scientist, you're actually saying something very important. You're saying I have frontal override of the rest of the response because I actually have a rational process that the probabilities are independent, that the things that made it scary yesterday aren't going to make it scary today because I've adjusted it. Therefore I can control my fear response. That's right. And, and I, and I have to say that um, much of my life um, and perhaps this is why I eventually decided to study fear um, much, much of my life um, has centered around uh, putting myself into scenarios that for me were felt threatening um, it, you know, I always tried to assume a reasonable sense of, uh, risk reward, uh, trade off. Um, you don't want to be, you don't want to be haphazard or crazy. I mean, I look at Honold, right. Who climbed El Cap, no ropes, no nothing. I mean, but he, he didn't just do it. You know, the first time with no ropes, I mean, he rehearsed it to the point where his confidence, he was doing it. I mean, he knew all the holds. I mean, I think I, I'm not a climber, but I've spoken to some climbers and what they said that's so incredible about the fact that he did that. It wasn't just his fear suppression. It was the fact that he remembered all the sequences that are required under different conditions because it's going to be different depending on weather conditions, and rock conditions, et cetera, and those interact. So I think that being able to really reasonably assess risk under high stress is, is important. Um, being adaptive is one of the things I, I pride myself on. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I was out there with experts and we had permits from the Mexican government to do the cage exit. You're actually not allowed to do it without permits and this kind of thing. There's a lot of recklessness that goes on out there that um, I don't support. Um, and at the same time, I, um, that's right. I think my cognitive override process is a little extreme. I guess in the world of, um, you know, you get, sometimes go to the gym and you see those guys who have huge upper bodies, but no legs. I have strived to not be the guy who just thinks and doesn't feel, you know, I don't want to be the neural, um, uh, parallel to that, but no, but um, there's, there's something know. important here. You weren't saying, um, that you were going to override fear for irrational reasons. You were actually making sure that you didn't miss associate what the source of warranted fear was, right? You That's were doing right. realistic assessment. And most of the time what happens is, right. It's our, our adaptive response. Fear obviously is, was evolutionarily very useful to keep us to have us avoid things that could be harmful, right? 
Um, and whenever we have pain, then we have fear around having that same source of pain in the future to protect us from something that could be harmful. But we usually actually get the causation wrong. So we go up for public speaking and we have a painful experience. And so then we say, well, I'm never going to public speak again because public speaking was the cause of pain as opposed to identifying more carefully, being concerned what everyone thought of me and thinking I'm not good enough was the source of pain. And I can actually change that and still be able to public speak. So one shrinks your world unnecessarily. The other one gives you the capacity to say, is there something that I can actually do in the presence of the stimuli? Yeah, it's a really, really excellent point you're making. I mean, I feel like one of the fundamental things, and I've spent the last couple of years, because I'm considering writing a book on neuroscience for the general public that brings in some of the more modern understanding about how neural circuits work. Um, there's some great stuff out there, but I think that we're getting a little lost still in this idea of like lizard brain versus thinking brain. I mean, these things work as a dynamic interplay. They're not working independently. Um, and, uh, and I enjoy talking about neuroscience, to the general public. And, and one of the things that really, you know, I'm, I'm striving to understand or, you know, what are the tools that are out there for people to deal with trauma? What are the things mm -hmm. that people do to deal with anxiety as a way to make my laboratory science better and bring better treatments to people, bring better tools. And one of the things that I heard and I find so, um, true to, uh, in my own experience and, and from what you're saying is that trauma is often a confusion about who's responsible or what's responsible. Correct. Right? So in the shark thing, you know, it, example, very unusual scenario, right? For most people, um, is to, to be in the you know to go seek white shark rich territories and go into them, etc. But but the you know the the failure of oxygen the day before, the failure of the safety test, that doesn't change how dangerous a shark is, right? right? And so they are independent. And so I think for trauma, you know, so much of it is, is a, even if people can cognitively say, yeah, you know, that wasn't my fault. I know I, I know I had every right to be walking home at night at that time. People would report this kind of thing, right? Or I know that, you know, I really didn't do anything wrong. They feel as if they did something wrong because they were involved. And so the brain is somehow linked to contingencies and said, I must be somehow involved in a way that I shouldn't have been. And I think that that failure of, of, uh, who's to blame at an emotional level is really underlies a lot of what re people report um, as trauma. And um, otherwise it would just be, look, I was wronged. And so now I'm going to take myself out of the scenario in which I was wronged and I'm safe, but the brain doesn't do that. And so we were confused. I think we think that post-traumatic stress is all just a replay of some circuit because of experience was so intense. Look, people have been experiencing intense, intensely scary and traumatic scenarios since the beginning of time and they've been able to dump those and keep going in have lead reasonably happy lives and there's things like social support and of course sometimes these mechanisms go off and people need real real you know other forms of support medical interventions and so forth but really it's a failure to to dump the idea that or you know that somehow oneself was to blame and i think that that's um you know just by virtue of being there and I think that that's something that in animals you see, there's like a condition place preference or condition place avoidance. If you give a mouse something it likes in a location, it goes back to that location. Hell, my dog Costello does that. Hell, I do that. But if you experience something bad in a, in a given environment, the tendency is to not go back into that environment. You know, nature likes to cu cut a broad margin. So I think this conversation brings up both why cognitive behavioral therapy is effective and the limits of its effectiveness at the same time. 
-hmm. And so because there's a different mechanisms happening, right? So we think about cognitive behavioral therapy, we think about exactly what you did when you said they're independent probabilities one day and the next, and I'm going to check the tanks myself. And so the scuba hat means that, you know, I'm dealing with shark risk, not oxygen risk. Um, that was a straight like CBT kind of action that said, hey, let's not make a fear that is not actually a warranted appropriate fear. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, we look at things like getting the causation wrong. So overgeneralizing is a classic one. We were kids. We trusted our parents. They hurt us. And so we imprinted everyone who you trust is going to hurt you. Don't trust anybody. And of course, that represented like N equals two out of all people. And when we were a kid and didn't know how to actually assess for trustworthiness and defend ourselves and speak up and et cetera. So then we grow up and we say, well, I've been avoiding trust my whole life because of this overgeneralization. Maybe it's not true that all people we trust are going to hurt us. Maybe it's I didn't know how to assess trustworthiness yet. And now I can. So there's some increased capacity. So the CBT part is get the causation right. Right? right, so that you aren't overgeneralizing, and the fear response is, if we're not clear, let's make a very wide. Just don't go anywhere in that area. If you don't know where the landmine is, just don't even go to that field. Right. That's right. That's right. My sister, who's deathly afraid of sharks, oh, you know, she made a really good point. She's not a scientist. She happens to be a therapist, but she said, "Look, the probability of getting eaten by a great white shark if you stay out of the ocean." <laughs> you know, yeah. she's not somebody who's typically quantitatively oriented, but she nailed it. <laughs> the, the challenge is that if you want to overcome a certain um, early wiring or even hardwiring, um, th- it's hard to know what scenarios to place yourself in to do that. And I think one of the really exciting tools is going to be, uh, are going to be the tools that are allow to reopen plasticity, something that I hope we can get into during this, um, this podcast. I mean, I think that, you know, how to dump previous experiences and take on new experiences is a fundamentally interesting question. I, I will say, um, one thing though, before we, uh, if, if we're going to transition to something else at any point, one thing that I, I think is really important for people to understand and thinking about the brain and just their lives is um, the role of emotions. You know, I, I think we fundamentally misunderstand uh, what emotions are good for. I mean, emotions evolve to kind of move us towards certain things, kind of appetitive behaviors as they're called or um, away from other things, aversive um, or avoidant behaviors. Um, but you know, and here I'm going to borrow from um, my friend and, and very talented uh, trauma release therapist, Ryan Swab, who's, who's out in Florida. He runs an addiction treatment center out in Florida, which uses a lot of um, breath work, but also more standard. He's a licensed therapist, more traditional forms to treat um, addiction, mainly in the form of trying to reduce stress first and then deal with sort of familial um, structure and things like that. And Ryan, you know, has this really impressive um, structure for how uh to think about emotions which is under you know emotions are sort of like weather right they come and they go and i think we've, we've become a culture that's so attached to the idea that feelings are are so important and they are it's very important to be you don't want to be we're not robots you don't want to be a robot but you know the purpose and destination and what you're trying to accomplish are probably more important than feelings when moment to moment feelings when trying to navigate decisions, nodes of decision making, right? Because if you think about your ship and your head, you set your destination in a particular location and then that's kind of like your purpose, your destination. This could be in the work domain, it could be in the relationship domain, it could be in any domain really. You decide, okay, like for me, I knew, I I had a kind of rough teenage years for 
reasons related to my family structure, even though I had a good family growing up. And I, I decided at some point at 19, that's it. I'm going to get serious about school and academics. I'm going to turn myself into a professional of something that was positive for the world. And I'm going to have my PhD by the time I'm 30. I'm going to be a faculty member by the time I'm 35. I don't have tenure by the time I'm 40. Those were decisions I made, like a ship would pick destinations. And there were plenty of days in which things were challenging. And so what you want to do in trying to navigate any course is when emotions come up, they're like weather. Sometimes you tack down, you know, use kind of nautical terms, you, you, you know, you tack down the ship, you, you, you wait, wait out the weather. Sometimes you might take a different course, but you don't suddenly say, oh, you know, I'm going to steer for a completely different coast because the, the waves are choppy or it's looking really nice over there. Let's just go over there instead. And so emotions are like weather. And so you want to take advantage of them when they're taking you toward your destination, but you also want to think rationally about them when they're not. And I think that that's something that's very powerful in navigating any kind of um, series of, of nodes of decision in trying to um, complete a process, whatever short or long-term process that is. Um, so this, this connects well to something I was going to say about your experience in with the sharks is you said you felt tested and stress testing is actually a really meaningful thing to assess, you know, how a person is going to uh, respond in future stress scenarios to know how much you can actually trust them under stress scenarios. Right. And so specifically here, when emotions get intense, how much can someone continue to make choices based on their values as opposed to get hijacked by the emotion? And that's one of the like deep questions is someone's ability to maintain some, some forebrain awareness in the presence of the emotion so that it doesn't completely run them, right? And in which case they really lost abstract, clear thinking. They lost their value system as a basis for decision-making. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the ways I think about it is you've got an emotional bell curve that of states where most of the time people are here and right after Vipassana or psychedelics, they might be like super elated and after trauma, they might be super upset, but the states can change instantly, right? You can hear some news and they change and the kind of stage of where someone's at emotionally in their life overall is something like the center of the, of the gravity of that bell curve. But then we also have a separate bell curve of their behavior, which is the shittiest they ever behave and the best they ever behave and where they generally behave in terms of how aligned with their goals, how considerate, et cetera. And one of the things I look at for trustworthiness is how much someone separates those two bell curves mm. so that their behavioral bell curve does not respond to the emotional bell curve, meaning that they can get emotionally triggered into a poor state and still make good choices. Yeah. So that's, that's a really useful model. I think, um, as with so many of our conversations, Daniel, you, you put things into it. I think that that's an extremely mo important model for people to understand. Um, I, I need to think about that a little bit more also, because I think, um, right. I mean, you know, when I select people to work in my laboratory, I'm looking for a passion for science because I know what's required. You know, science is hard and um, it's also beautiful and you get these incredible experiences. And I really believe that um, people are going to continue to, will come to the lab and make fundamental discoveries if they show up and work hard and, and are observant. Um, I also, uh, you know, if I could, and of course I can't, but if I could, I would also want a developmental history on them. And I'd want to know how they reacted to stressful scenarios in, in previously, which is, I think it, it captures a little bit of, of your model of the bell curves of, of sort of emotionality versus decision-making. Um, I'm, I'm going to let you in on a secret here. If I'm hiring someone for a role where 
the trustworthiness matters a lot, right? Def defect out of trustworthiness could be really consequential. And everyone should pay attention to that this should also be something that you assess for when dating um, because trustworthiness matters a lot and you want to assess it. And of course, early on, everyone just presents their most trustworthy self and that doesn't mean anything at all um, about who they actually are. So I want to stress test it before actually going into a place where there's any attachment or actual risk. And so what that looked like is I want to go to a place where our logistics get fucked up. They miss their airplane The you know, Uber comes late, some waitress spills something on them. And I want to see, do they yell at the waitress? You know, do they behave, do they lose their ethical standard? And the question is really, the way I think about it is, what is the floor that someone sets on the lowest behavior they're willing to accept of themselves? Yeah. So it's like yeah. someone, someone yeah. can say, I'm just never going to hit my spouse when I'm upset, no matter how upset, like I won't allow it. And they can raise it higher and say, I'm not going to yell. They can raise it higher. But you have to stress test it and see. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that, um, you know, so much of our society and so much of life is about setting up these boundaries um, for ourselves and for each other. You know, for instance, I'm somebody that can be highly motivated by excitement and love and enthusiasm. I have a whole set of songs that I listen to that immediately just take me to a place where I feel unstoppable. And I have also somebody who can work pretty damn hard and um, through from the place of, you know, you're not going to break me kind of negative, a little more negative or gritty kind of uh, mindset. I can switch back and forth, right? One is more stressful than the other, perhaps, but both work and the mm -hmm. outcome um, are what I care about. Um, but I know for myself, I have boundaries. I won't do anything unethical, mm -hmm. you know, I won't lie, cheat or steal in order to get where I need to go. And what you're really trying to assess is, you know, to what extent um, people have clear boundaries, you could call them values, but really to what extent people are willing to um, break protocol with themselves, um, break protocol with the group in order to achieve what they want to achieve. And, um, you know, one thing, I, a good friend of mine, he said, you know, you love rules, Andrew. And, you know, it's interesting. I love rules for a pretty, I was a pretty wild teenager, but not because I was seeking fun. I just, I, I was seeking structure. And, um, you know, I, I do. I, I like rules. I, I feel like, um, you know, it's been said before and there's nothing profound about this, but you know, it's like a playground with a bunch of kids kicking a ball around, but it's next to a road. And so they can't really play that freely, but then you put up a chain link fence and now you can really boot the ball as hard as you want. You can run as fast as you want because there's a boundary there that you know that you're safe. Right. So it's really all comes down to safety and the tough scenarios I've had to navigate in managing people have generally, um, been, uh, you know, have improved when I understood kind of what they were really afraid of, uh, afraid of failure, or um, in some cases, afraid of success or afraid of having to, um, you know, what was going to happen to them, or there was a backdrop of their life that was more complicated. I'm not a therapist, I run a laboratory. So, you know, there are limits to what we, we discuss. But, you know, over and over again, I think uh, what you find is kind of, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, when people feel safe, when they feel like there's some range on what, how they can emotionally express themselves, when they feel like the group really supports them and they're in the company of people that have common goals, I, I think people are willing to start tolerating more and more risk and um, in a healthy way um, in order to achieve goals. And so now we're talking a little bit more abstractly, but I think um, having a system for oneself is very important. Um, and I think that public declarations are very important. Even just think about the public declaration of merit, a public declaration, they're really saying, 
look, even though I might, and if you just look at the, the traditional vows of American marriage, most of those are saying, even if I want to do blank, I'm not going to. Not, they never say, I'm not going to want to. It says, even if I want to, I'm not going to. And nowadays, people set different rules for their marriages than people did 50 years ago, of course. There's a lot more um, discretion and, and decision-making, um, personalized decision-making there. But I find it extremely interesting that um, you know, we, we acknowledge in a lot of our kind of basic ceremonies of culture that what we want and what we're willing to do are two different things. And we make those declarations publicly so that um, culture keeps us in line. We don't want shame. We don't want to shame ourselves. Um, you know, the one of the great things about being a scientist and uh, is that it really is a pursuit of knowledge and truth. And so I'm very lucky to be in a profession where sure there are some egos and things like that. And I, I've definitely got one. I love to win. feels great to get papers accepted and grants funded and that kind of thing. But fundamentally I want to understand how things work. And so my powers of self delusion are not very strong, unfortunately. And so, you know, we've just got to, do everything short of, you know, sweat blood in order to figure out how, how this incredible structure in our heads works. And, um, and so everyone that comes to my lab is genuinely devoted to that. Okay. So we had to take a uh, short tech break there and there's a lot that we actually wanted to cover. And I, I think if you're open to it, we'll do a part two um, because framing up fear you know, was then a basis to say, well, how do we really work with this? And how do we work with increasing plasticity, which is where a huge amount of your, you know, work is. And uh, how do we use um, breath? How do we use cognitive framing? How do we use vision? How do we use all kinds of things to to help shift it? So we'll do another part on that. I'm actually pretty excited to hear about the app you guys are developing as well. And some thoughts on the future of VR psychotherapy and fear inoculation and all that fun stuff. But it's interesting because we're talking about fear here. And, you know, in, in general, you talk about having a orientation towards increasing people's positive sense of life and emotion and motivation. So talk about why is it actually important that one understands fear if they want to have a life that is positive and has increased capacity and motivation. Mm -hmm. Why is yeah. it not just a negative topic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be nice to live a life where we avoid fear and discomfort entirely, but that's, they're going to be, um, obviously, stressors are going to show up, and some of those are going to be fear-induced stressors, whether or not it's a medical diagnosis that's scary or waiting for a metal, medical diagnosis or something really acute like a, you know, like a, you know, robbery or break-in. Um, or something of that sort where you have to really react or not react under pressure. Um, I think that one of the things that's um, really valuable, it, you know, people have talked about this much more that, than I will hear about being able to kind of third person oneself and get out of the, see oneself in the scenario in order to make better decisions. I, I think that's useful under um, for certain professions and certain, certain people. I, I think that what people, you know, talk about capacity, you know, I think that um, everyone could afford to have a slightly better capacity for stress tolerance, uh, especially emotional stress tolerance, because, what, you know, we rarely, rarely, not always, but we rarely um, are punished uh, for what we don't do. 
You know, it's the thing that we wish we hadn't said or the thing that we wish we hadn't done that often gets us into trouble. And a lot of times that's because we're just in a level of high reactivity. And I look at reactivity as a mode of kind of erratic um, responsiveness. It's, it's not being intentioned. And I think that, um, so increasing our capacity is good. There are also some people that are just really unflappable. They're just really, really even and really stable. Um, and that's wonderful under some scenarios. And, and yet you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be like the tin man. You want to, you want to have some emotion. You want an ability to feel into things, but know that you're not going to cross your own boundaries or other people's boundaries in a way that, that disrupts your, your short and long-term um, life plan. And so I think that the more that people can understand that these negative emotions like fear and stress and arousal kind of fit in a package of things that motivate the brain to take on certain sets of responses, whether or not those are violent responses or violent verbal responses, you, when you start to really separate those out and you kind of start to identify where your own internal boundaries are, you start to feel more powerful as a human being in a positive sense because you know that you're in the driver's seat. You're, for, you're moving further and further away from reactivity. When you experience fear or something that's dreadful or, or traumatizing as something that you're carrying around or that's kind of floating around over your shoulder, kind of a dark side that you know you have and, and that the world is a threatening place, but also that you have threatening places inside you. I think that that's when um, you see people really becoming debilitated. They become almost afraid of themselves. They're afraid of what, what they'll do. Um, you know, it's like the public speaking example. Uh, the person who has a bad experience public speaking isn't necessarily afraid the next time they're going to do it that people are going to throw tomatoes at them or boo them out of the room or shame them into isolation. I think they're afraid of what they'll do. You know, if you really probe people, you say, well, are you afraid of public speaking? They'll say, I'm afraid I'm going to like urinate in my pants in front of everybody. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. And you say, well, what do you mean? What would that mean? And they say, I'm afraid I'm going to offend somebody. So they're actually not even concerned about their own well-being. They're concerned about somebody else's well-being primarily. So when you really get honest about this stuff and you start to dissect it out, you start to learn that um, people are really just want to have coherence with, with themselves and with their surroundings. And so knowing where those boundaries are, knowing there's a, there's a thick buffer between what you think you might want to do and what you'll actually do is very powerful. And this is the essence of a lot of martial arts and military training. And, um, and you know, in therapy, you learn to listen and not to react. And um, none of us want to be impulsive in that way. And so I think that, um, you know, this kind of alludes to a bigger conversation I think we're going to have in a part two, which is how do you actually modify this, in, you know, the, this, this incredible organ in your brain, in your head, your brain, so that it works in your favor? You know, how do you discard with previously hardwired or seemingly hardwired action patterns, and thought patterns? And how do you start to create more automatic responses that really serve you and serve those around you better? And I think one of the really exciting areas of, practical application of neuroscience, this is kind of the basis for the Neurohacker Collective in part, um, is to identify tools for plasticity, whether or not they're pharmacologic, whether or not they're nootropic, whether or not they're behavioral. I'm very interested in the role of applied breath work and vision tools, but also brain machine interface as a way to reshape contingencies or expectations of outcomes. Um, it would be wonderful if one didn't need to go um, put place themselves into dangerous scenarios in order to increase capacity. But I think that's really where the field is headed, not just in understanding, you know, how the brain works, but how to work the brain and how to modify it. And um, fear just represents kind of one layer or entry point as um, in that uh, exploration. Mm -hmm. But it's the one that I think it's the one that creates the most suffering. And it's the one that if you can overcome even just a little bit, it builds on itself really quickly. And you can start to see 
um, sort of nonlinear um, increases or synergistic increases in the amount of uh, increases in well-being or what one is willing to take on. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you one thing, well, I'm, I'm somebody who I think has a healthy fear response, but there's very little um, that uh, is as scary to me as running out of air underwater, white sharks around that kind of thing. That's how I did it. And I'm grateful for the experience because now when I'm in a stressful scenario, I think, well, okay, it's not as bad as that. <laughs> and it places me into a calmer state and I can smile and move forward. So there have to be um, analogous situations that one can put themselves in that are not dangerous in order to accomplish that kind of plasticity. Okay. So this is interesting. You said something that I don't think you actually meant in the beginning, which is that it'd be nice if we could go through life without any fear experiences. I don't think that would be nice at all. I don't wish for that world. Um, and it, you know, the David Pearson, the hedonistic imperative brings up this, can we just remove negative emotions and have a gradient of positive emotions, um, be the basis of how we work in the future with genetic engineering. One of the things that strikes me in all of the ancient wisdom cultures was how much more clear and precise their distinction between comfort and happiness was than the way we, I think there's actually something about after the scientific revolution, we started understanding all of reality as objective because we could measure objective things. We couldn't measure subjective things. So objective became synonymous with real and we could measure comfort a lot better than we could measure happiness. So we started making a world that optimized for it. So we have more comfortable beds than Kings used to in transportation, et cetera, with increased mental illness and, you know, actual subjective problems because we didn't understand how to deal with that well. And But one of the things that the wisdom traditions all did was intentionally induce discomfort to have beings that realized that they didn't have to be the result of their environment and that they could actually internalize their locus of control. And when you think about going into the sweat lodge, the key to a good sweat lodge is it's hot enough that it triggers the fear response, I'm going to die in here. But you actually know that it's not that hot, that the shaman is sitting up at the top of it that's hotter than where where you're at and that people have done this forever. And so you learn not to be controlled by the fear. And in doing so, you actually learn who you are beyond reactive patterns. And, you know, uh, the vision quest, the sun dance, the even yoga asana, so much of them is just get in an uncomfortable position and then find your breath and find mm-hmm. peace and then get in another uncomfortable position. And yeah. so I actually love, and, you know, I, I love the idea that VR could be a way to induce uncomfortable positions with no real risk of harm, mm-hmm. but being able to induce the discomfort so that we can learn to internalize our locus of control. And because that is what sovereignty is, right? If we are the result of our environment, so we avoid fear by avoiding environmental stimuli, then we have no sovereignty. Right. No, it's a, you're right. I think it's an attractive idea at times. It's an alluring idea that a life of a life without fear or pain, but um, as a practice, as an experience, it, it would be terrible. Um, <laughs> I think that, um, you know, these days, and, and fr- frankly, my entire life, I've tried to surround myself with people that were seeking to be the best possible version of themselves. There were times I, I didn't do that myself. And there were times I didn't surround myself with those kinds of people. But in general, it feels really good to be around people that are trying to become the better version of themselves. I would assert that it's almost impossible, maybe impossible to become the best version of oneself without experiencing any discomfort or fear or stress. And I think that boils down to the hormesis idea. It boils down to the Hans Selye who won the Nobel prize for general, general adaptation syndrome. 
yes, you have distress and you have stress, but that you become a stronger, better neural organism. You become a stronger, better physical organism by placing yourself into reasonable scenarios or sometimes unreasonable scenarios in which you experience stress and have to work your way through it, survive it, compensate and show up better. And so I think that um, purely positive emotions um, would be terrible. And I go back to this human study, this Heath 1963 science paper. These patients, they were patients because they had electrodes in the brain for other reasons, but um, they were, it was, a, it was available to them to, to stimulate any brain area, including areas that stimulate pleasure. And they did stimulate those brain areas. Their preferred experience was some low level frustration of effort. And I think there's something fundamentally important in that, in that result. It needs to be repeated. But I think that the human species evolved by challenging itself and frustration and confusion. These days, I think a lot about how confusion and frustration actually might be the neural circuits testing out different arrangements of firing patterns. Makes sense. I mean, we do need to test that. We need to evaluate that in first in animal models, then in human models to really get down to the, the mechanistic guts of it. But you know, it changes the way that I feel when I read something and I go, ah, I didn't even absorb any of that. I'm going to go back again. Maybe mm-hmm. This is my brain trying to absorb things, um, take some sleep, wake up the next day, and boom, you have the ideas. It's that the, those small bits of pain and pushing yourself up against the boundaries. It's not unlike physical practices. So I think um, we're, we're rapidly um, gaining understanding in this area, not just in the science domain, but in the practical application of neuroscience tools like the areas that you work in. Um, and I think it's exciting to see where all this is going to lead. I have to say um, that's what our species was designed to do was to evolve itself. So I really love this 1963 paper that you're referencing because from an Evo Devo perspective, the relationship between evolution and development, um, natural selection selects for increased adaptive capacity Mm -hmm. that can be evolutionarily from the point of view of natural selection, but also developmentally we can develop increased capacity. And now we understand that you pass down the epigenetics or you actually pass down. There's a deeper relationship between evolution and development. You can actually pass down some of the developmental dynamics so that there would be a very deep pleasure response of some kind, a deep, um, reward response around developing adaptive capacity, given that that's the whole thing that's selected for makes perfect sense. Right. And most of the other creatures are tremendously more hardwired than we are. And so to be creatures that have so much developmental capacity, um, and to see what a deep set of positive responses there are on actualizing that and why self-actualization is at the top of the pyramid. It's uh, yeah, it makes a lot of evolutionary biology sense. Yeah, you know, I mean, again, I, we're going to get into plasticity in a second conversation. But you know, I mean, our species—what the way we're different than a honeybee or a, a bear or another or a tiger, for that matter—is that you know the duration of plasticity in humans is extremely long, and um, it, it never actually closes down. The idea that there's a critical period that closes completely is is false. Um, we know there's plasticity as an adult. It's harder to access. You don't tend to learn things passively as well. You really need to focus your attentional mechanisms. You really need to, if there's an adaptive um, uh, uh, payoff, you know, if you have to learn something in order to eat and survive, you're going you're to learn it um, more quickly than if, uh, you know, the, the rewards are none or the rewards.
words are trivial, but, um, and that probably has to do with attention ultimately, which probably has to do with some sort of cholinergic drive and really anchoring a lot of neural resources towards particular stimuli um, and understanding the contingencies, like what leads to what and really focusing on those. Um, but in any case, I think that, you know, there, that's what our species was designed to do. And I love to take a step back and think about, you know, this conversation and other conversations that are taking place in the, um, in the world now around the future of neuroscience and the future of um, humanity, frankly, and think, you know, and realize that we're at the front edge of our evolution. <laughs> you know, things, some things may look very primitive and, and they are, but we're really at the leading edge of our evolution now. And what's so exciting is that with all these tools, with all the discussion and with some reasonable frameworks, um, we're really in, in the position to use our neural architecture to reshape our neural architecture to create better neural architectures, not just so some of it might be epigenetic. You can also imagine that the less stressed or higher capacity organism, if you, you know, select to meet with a less stressed, higher capacity organism, you have a child, that child's going to grow up in an environment in which the parents have a certain understanding of trust and reliability about the world. They're going to be neurochemical milieus and endocrine hormonal milieus in that family line that are going to be very important. I mean, this sounds a little bit eugenic, but that's not what I'm intending. It's just, you're going to, when kids feel safe, they behave very differently than when they don't feel safe. Same with adults, right? And adults who don't feel safe feel the exact same things that children do. I think it was Freud. It's kind of, I love, there are two quotes that sort of run in parallel that I, that I always come back to. So Freud had this saying, um, uh, anxiety makes children of us all. And, uh, and I would add to that, um, except that as adults, we use adult tools to respond to it. <laughs> we don't just cry and, you know, in our pillows. Or the, some, some people might do that. You know, they use violence and they say horrible things and they get revenge and do all sorts of horrible things. So anxiety makes children of us all. And I think it was, um, I don't know, maybe it was Vince Lombardi or maybe it was, um, it was one of the great boxing trainers that said, um, you know, uh, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And those sort of go hand in hand, right? I mean, fatigue and, and anxiety. The, the point being that the opposite is also true, that when you feel secure, you're able to make different decisions about the kind of creative and expansive life you want, you want to live. You're able to give, and this is all sounding very feel good and kind of generic, but you can imagine what it's like to just spend a short window of your developmental existence in one regime versus another. And then you can imagine what it's like to spend a short and you say, wow, you know, I mean, the outcomes are distinctly different. So it's our responsibility, I think, as individuals to what, you know, engage in what I'm calling self-directed adaptive plasticity, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, to be able to uh, find tools, you apply tools and for self-directed adaptive plasticity, that is, you know, better coping and better coping means that you can navigate your life better. You can treat yourself better, treat other people better. Those are, if, if there are enough people doing that, right. Uh, one of the great ethos of the neurohacker collective and, and others as well is if you can, if we can do that in sufficiently large numbers of people, we're going to see a massive evolution of our species. If we don't, things are going to continue pretty much the way they've been going, regardless of the technologies that we develop. I like your self-directed adaptive plasticity. I think uh, Rick Hansen and Norman Doidge would really like that term if you haven't shared it with them yet. Um, it reminds me, and you know, we'll, we'll close. There's so many places we could go, and I'm ex super excited for number two when we come and actually get into how to do self-directed adaptive plasticity. 
it reminds me that we made this paper and we never published it yet and I haven't shown it to you, but it was a literature review on adult um, neural restructuring. And so it was uh, neurogenesis, neuroautophagy, synaptogenesis, and synaptic cleaving and to show that, yes, it's nice to get childhood right, but you're not screwed if you don't get childhood right. Um, and that you can actually radically, through many methods, increase uh, neural restructuring of all kinds. And um, so I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you because I'd love to get your feedback on it, maybe before we do this next one on on the topic. Yeah, I'd love to take a read. I mean, I think that um, it's true. You know, you have this amazing window of plasticity early in life, but um, for better or for worse, um, you weren't in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. and, uh, when you become an adult and you start engaging the neural machinery that you that you built and that was built for you, and um, but you maintain this capacity, which is to engage in a self-directed adaptive plasticity, or you can just take what you've got and, and, and run the, run the gears as, as they exist. And so um, I think it's our responsibility as human beings, because our species is a conscious species to constantly try and become a better version of ourselves, which is effectively saying, um, or essentially saying to constantly try and update our neural architecture in a way that allows us to show up better in the world and better serve ourselves and humanity. And um, and the non uh, the non human species uh, on the planet as well. I should I should thank you. Extremely important. So uh, Andrew, thank you for taking the time and being here and sharing um, cutting edge research coming out of Stanford and other related places that both really kind of reifies a lot of perennial philosophy and wisdom as well as actually gives us new insights that are refinements that we didn't have before and that is leading to the development of new tools. I'm super excited for part two, which we'll do soon. So everyone who is interested in this and is like, okay, great. So I'm interested in the increased um, frontal override of uh, the fear process. How do I do that? We'll get into that next time. And uh, thank you, Andrew. Look forward to it. Thanks so much. It's, it's been a, a real pleasure. And I promise that for part two, that the backdrop will be uh, a little more attractive than my hotel room in uh, well, it doesn't matter where I am, but the, <laughs> the, um, it's warm and cozy. I have nothing to complain about, but um, thank you, Daniel. And, and thanks to the Neurohacker Collective. You guys are, are doing terrific work. Really, really appreciate your time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. 
Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.